I would walk in and be the single biggest individual on the cap table, but it wasn't enough. And as we negotiated that, and I couldn't get what I wanted, in my uh, delirious optimism, as really any other entrepreneur, I declined, said, no, nah, that I am not doing. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Dennis Mortensen. Dennis, are you ready to rock? Oh, yes. <laughs> There's something about you that I am really looking forward to your story. And I think it may have to do with the fact that you have devoted your life to startups. I spent the last 25 years trying to make five different ventures work, and I'm still at it. Amen. So Dennis is an expert in leveraging data to deliver business insights. A serial entrepreneur, Dennis built and successfully exited several companies before founding x.ai in 2014 it's a company that is solving a painful problem which is scheduling meetings through a sophisticated ai platform that saves people time and effort dennis is a recognized leader author and university instructor in the field of digital data and analytics originally from denmark Dennis lives in New York's New York. I'm going to say New York City, but I'm going to say New York with his family. So, Dennis, take a minute and fill in for the tidbits about your life. The funny thing about my story, or at least to me, is that I was hell bent on not becoming an entrepreneur because my dad, my uncles, cousins, most of my family ran their own companies. So all I wanted was really just to get my CS degree and go work for IBM. And not any company, just IBM. They're not far from where I lived. I wanted to get the degree, take my bicycle, go find a desk. And I didn't even kind of imagine I would interview. I would just kind of turn up and say, hey, so let's get started. Somehow it didn't kind of pan out that way. And I ended up doing a venture right out of college and now I'm 25 years in, but it was never the plan. It was always one for where I was really eager to just sit in my corner with a Diet Coke and hack away over at IBM. We can talk about exactly how it ended up like that, but I'm just saying that it was not the master plan. You know, I, it makes me think of a question I have for you, and I'm going to preface it with a little story. Many years ago, I read a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I thought it was a very good book at the time. But later, I kind of started questioning the advice. Basically, in this book, the rich dad was ultimately an entrepreneur. The poor dad was a salary man. And my father was a salary man all his life. And uh, what I realized was that in that book, he taught many things. But one of the things he taught is the value of being an entrepreneur. But then I asked myself, what percentage of people really are entrepreneurs? I mean, there's a bank right down the street. They have 200,000 people that work for it. How many entrepreneurs are in there? How many managers? And I really realized that, wait a minute, giving the advice of 
to the mass of people to be an entrepreneur is really bad advice because the majority of them will fail. But it brings me to the question that I want to ask you before we get into the question. And that is, is the idea of entrepreneurship, is it in your genes, do you think? Is it something genetic? I think like many other things, it's a combination of some inherent ability that might be uh, difficult or impossible to describe. But I certainly also believe there's, there's a set of learnings that you can pick up. So in that Venn diagram, there'll be some sort of optimal overlap. But I also want to play in the Premier League. But I think I've just accepted the fact that, sure, I could go train 10 hours a day, every day, seven days a week. But I still can't really honestly, between you and me, imagine mm. that I'm going to play in the Premier League. So sure, I could kind of work on it, but it's probably not going to happen. And I think with entrepreneurship, surely you could want it. You could uh, go up to Colombia and take your MBA and you can get started on one venture after the next. But there must be something which you might not be able to describe that resides inside you. And if it doesn't exist, you might not ever really get the success you had hoped for. Mm. And it seems that some nurture that of being brought up in a family of entrepreneurs for where if I wanted to make any money, I had to go make it myself. So I used to do door-to-door -door sales, selling apples from nine to, I don't know, 14. Because hey, any teenager wants money to buy stuff. So I probably knocked on 10,000 doors trying to sell somebody something before I was 15. And if you ever want to really do a good MBA, go knock on 10,000 doors. As in, there's something which you can't write up in a kind of use case of what Netflix did over this period that really compares to that of speaking to uh, 10,000 moms staying at home and trying to convince them to buy, you know, 10 apples for 10 kroner. So uh, that was certainly uh, something I kind of treasure now, but didn't see as obviously back then. Uh. What a valuable experience. What a valuable experience because the one thing I always say to people, you know, particularly young people that come out of university and stuff is that, you know, sales is the one job out of all jobs that's just an emotional roller coaster. And it's the one thing that you cannot not do if you run a startup. So if you want to do a new venture, you and a buddy, you and a buddy and 10 other guys, you and a buddy and some VC capital and a hundred guys, it doesn't matter. All you will be doing is sales. You'll be selling investors. You'll be selling the press. You'll be selling candidates. You'll be selling your team. You'll be selling your team again. You'll be selling customers. You'll qualify leads. You'll be selling day in and day out, even though you'll sit back and say, oh, I'm a really good product designer. Oh, fuck that. You'll be selling people. That's your job. And for some that is a grind that they just die on. So if you don't enjoy that or kind of turn it into something for where you live on the yes and the 49 no's doesn't really matter much, it's probably not for you. It's a great, it's a great lesson. And I think that, that when it comes down to entrepreneurship, you know, there's so much glamour that people see in it and they talk about it, but this is the reality you've got to get out there and hit the streets well it's a good story from my uh, last venture 
So we did predictive analytics for news media, trying to figure out what particular story CNN should carry on their homepage, where and for how long, once they killed it, what, what new story to carry. And we wanted Hearst to be one of our customers. They ended up being one of our customers. It took me 19 months. I was up at the Hearst Tower 41 times. There's not a floor in that Hearst Tower I haven't seen. 41 times, as in anybody else would have said, Dennis, do you have an apartment here? No, I am doing selling. And I did it for 19 months. And sure, that might have been the extended version, but it's not really a, a story that you couldn't just pick up some random entrepreneur from the street and he would have a similar story. Yeah. But that's really what it would take. Yeah, because most people would say, come on, Dennis, you got to give up at 40. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever, ever, ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. So any entrepreneur, or certainly any entrepreneur, who tries to turn that into a lifelong career, not just a moment in time for where I must try this out and once done, I'll go back and kind of work for Morgan Stanley and it will all be good and fine. But anybody certainly like me who turns it into a lifelong career will have a different type of investment, not the uh, traditional one, because all our investments are attached to the idea of a startup, not some other thing. So I don't do any angel investments, any kind of public stock, any board seats, any advisory, anything for where I can make any money outside of my ventures. So I play one game and if I win, I feel like I can take some sort of credit for it. And if I lose, I know who to blame because I tried to play the best game I could. So that's certainly the uniqueness of entrepreneurs. Now, to set the scene, I, initially started a what we would back then call an internet company that is obviously a term that doesn't mean anything in the year 2020 but it meant something in 96 because it was a new medium and if you ever want to start an internet company the mid 90s it's not uh, too shabby a time to start it and we leaned in we were able to finance it on cash flow, as in completely bootstrapped, didn't have any investors, ran it up to an exit in April 2000. And if you ever want to escape that time period, selling your dot-com company in April 2000 with NASDAQ at you know, short of 5,000, that is probably not too bad. So whenever people look back and say, oh, that was a horrific time, I think of it as that was a wonderful time. I must have been 26, 27. It's not like we sold it for, in the grand scheme of things, a large amount of money, but certainly as a young individual coming right out of college with no money, we ended up with about $11 million. That's, uh, That's huge. not nothing. At that age. And, and really, and we can talk about that as a separate footnote another day, most people have this idea that to... Uh, escape whatever they think is suboptimal in life, I need $100 million. No, you don't really need that much. What you need is just to pay your apartment or house in cash, have a few monies set aside for college for the kids, and then you're really golden. As in, I can 
I can't even spend my salary. And I'm getting a shitty salary in my own startup right now because I don't have any cost. And with that money, we did some sort of integration. It was all good and fine. And it was time to go do the next thing. And that's where the story begins. Mm. I can now choose to do certainly one of two things. Take the money I've made, put some aside, make sure things don't go well. That's a little bit for a rainy day. Or like any other optimistic, naive, aggressive, stupid entrepreneur, take it all, put it on red, and just you know, play one more evening. And um, that's what I did. And the funny thing is, and this is where perhaps there's no learning for me here, to this day, I still kind of think it's a good investment, even though I know there's some mistakes here that I would like to go back and see if I could not have turned left when uh, I turned right. But I walked back in and we started a business very similar to Grubhub, uh, Seamless, JustEatTakeaway.com, that kind of whole scene, and did it early. And obviously, the idea was good. These are billion-dollar companies today. So certainly on paper, it was a very good investment. So I jumped in in the deep end, money in both hands, and uh, start to build up the team. And without you know, turning it long, I want to at least just point out two things. We actually did manage to drive up revenue. We had one particular quirk in our business idea that were different to that of, say, a Seamless or Grubhub over in the U.S. for where they conceptually take no responsibility for the deliveries. If you don't like that Thai food you ordered yesterday, you pick another Thai place tomorrow. We rebranded it, and that meant we could have a slightly higher margin on what we sold, but obviously on any error, we're the ones to blame. And I thought that the higher margin would make up for the cost of the blame, and that was not the case. And that was probably the single biggest mistake, but it was one that I couldn't let go of because there's something very lovely about running your own brand because you see that in packaging and advertising you see it kind of uh, spread across so we drove up revenue rapidly but the blame part we kind of did a domino style set of incentives where if we didn't kind of do what you thought we should do i gave you something right that could be free food some coupon and I meant for every kind of $100 I made, it cost me 120 or whatever the numbers were. But I thought scale and process optimization will solve for this. So these two lines will cross in the future. And in many times, in many businesses, that is true. That is just too expensive to run at low volume, but becomes more effective at high volume. But obviously, I was financing this. And if you run those curves up and you run them up fast, you have less money tomorrow than you had today. And I kept running them up. And I didn't see the two lines, to put it simply, starting to cross. All I could see is that that uh, pile of money I used to have is certainly uh, not as big as, uh, as it were when I started. And this is, not, uh, this is certainly the, uh, what we could, could call the error, but that's actually not what I'm here to kind of... Mm. Talk about, no, the real error. And you would say, but Dennis, that was the error. That's how you died. And 
what you should have done is uh, looked at the market and seen, because at the very moment we started, somebody in Europe called Just Eat started at the same time. And just a little, little bit of historical context here. They then ended up with uh, Takeaway.com. Takeaway.com and Just Eat, not many moons ago, just acquired Grubhub for, what, seven, eight billion dollars. This is now the biggest company in the world that does food delivery. And you will know it by many brands. Mm. Now, that's the story. I said, shit. So that's a tens of billions of dollar type company. Okay, what's the story then, Dennis? Ah, the story is now that as they got started, they were also ramping this up, but obviously they had a slightly different uh, business plan, which is one for where oh, we are a marketplace. We really just uh, solicit a setting where you can go order something and then we take a percentage of that revenue, like any other marketplace. I were about to lose and I then had the opportunity to merge with this company. And merge with this company, let's go back to what I just said a few minutes ago, which is now perhaps by any measure, if not the biggest, then one of the biggest companies in the world that does this, tens of billions of dollars. And I can still go back in my notebook and have a look and see what we negotiate about. And I was haggling about whether I should get, I can't remember, somewhere between 21% and 23%, and I think they were at 18% of that company, which is still a staggering amount. I think I would be the single biggest shareholder in that company, and the only reason for that is I financed my end of the other company, so when we would merge, they hadn't done that on their end, so I would walk in and be the single biggest individual on the cap table, but it wasn't enough. And as we negotiated that, and I couldn't get what I wanted, in my uh, delirious optimism, as really any other entrepreneur, I declined, said, no, nah, that I am not doing. I'm going to win this on my own. I'll show you guys. You'll regret this. <laughs> not, not that dramatic. And three months later, because I didn't have much uh, capital left, we ran out of money and went uh, tits up. And if you go look at my LinkedIn, what you'll see is uh, I've had four ventures prior to this one. We've been so fortunate to have three exits, but we had one that didn't work. That's the one that didn't work. But you know what? It could have been the one that not just didn't work, but the one that really hit it out of the ballpark, like dramatically. And I did keep those notebooks. And sometimes I actually do go back and, uh, and keep, keep them just to kind of take a look and say, Dennis, what? What were you thinking? And if I was to then uh, just describe, well, what is the learning here? Oh, or what is the one learning I took away? First of all, just for those listening, from the end of the day, it doesn't matter. We can talk about how you should run your ventures if you want to run it as a lifelong experiment. Then you must run it like professional sports. It's just a game. You play to win, but there's a game tomorrow as well. You can't attach your life's worth to the success of your company. And those three girls at home, my daughters and my wife, they still love me whether we win or lose. So it's just a game. I'm not sure I saw it that clearly upon going belly up, but now I do see it more clearly. But that's a, that's a side note. Now the learning for me was one for where there's probably two types of ventures here. The ventures for where you're trying to turn them into billion dollar companies. 
And if so, or if you believe that is the treasure of this particular idea, then your individual ownership doesn't matter because the most likely outcome is that it won't work. But if it does work, whether you own uh, 4%, 12%, 18%, 21%, doesn't matter. Your life will have changed so dramatically that you won't even see the difference. Mm -hmm. So don't negotiate about that. Just figure out if you believe it is a way for you to participate. Now, if it is not that, as saying, this is a good business. This is a, you know, me and Andrew and 40 people and some particular niche and a dividend every year for where we can just live a fantastic life. Well, then ownership matters because once a year, Andrew and Danny is going to take out a dividend and that's going to be paying our you know, rent. Mm. So there we need to kind of figure out how does that add up. But in that scenario, I've certainly learned that if you want to build that type of company, and I'm not saying you should, I'm just saying when it might be that, just uh, let it slide, move on, and just expect that in a couple of years, it didn't work, it was just a good story, but if it did, ta-da, we all won. So there, that's your story. Mm, fantastic. So whenever you order anything next time that you can eat, I could have been an owner of that. That's how you should see it. So let's- In the world, by the way. Yeah. So let me, uh, let me share, you know, what I took away from it. There's a few things that got me thinking about. I used to say this, I haven't said this in a long time, but what I used to say to young people when they were thinking about being an entrepreneur or they're running a business or whatever, I always say, you know, the most important thing is don't make the wrong mistake. You can make many mistakes, but don't make that one wrong mistake that's going to kill your business. So people always ask me, so what is it? What is that one wrong mistake? I said, I have no idea. It's a good observation for where any startup is really just the class of bad decisions. And the danger is that, as you suggest, one of them might just be so bad that it kills the company. You just don't know which one it is. You'll know uh, once done, because you can go back and take a look <laughs> at it. And uh, I can certainly, for that particular venture, pinpoint a moment in time for where you could have taken a different decision and the outcome would have been different. Yeah. You did not, Dennis. Mm. Now, the, uh, my bookshelf, actually, the top shelf is all uh, books about battles and war, mainly the U.S. Civil War is an area of specialty for me. And what you realize after reading about battle after battle is that it really is just a, a ball of mistakes and errors and recoveries. It isn't the grand thing that people think it is of, you know, mapping out exactly how it's just like, how are you going to recover from these guys popping out of the woods where you didn't think they were there, you know? And so, yeah, it's definitely, life is a lot about just stumbling through those mistakes and, and surviving. <laughs> I think Mike Tyson said at some point, Everybody got a strategy until they get punched in the face. Yeah, and that hurts. So the, uh, the next thing you kind of made me, it made me laugh cause when you were talking about the first mistake and you may say, well, maybe this, uh, this I wasn't the final, or this was the mistake or whatever, but I, I, it kind of reminded me of something these days. Is, did the person die of COVID or with COVID? 
<laughs> yeah, you're going to die from many mistakes. But the question is, was that the mistake that killed you? Now, one other thing that you were really reminded me of, uh, there was a time when I was about 18 years old, and I, there was this factory near my house in Ohio where I grew up. And somehow I got a job in this factory. And, you know, it was just a, it was a kind of a silly little factory. All they made was screws and nuts. That was it. Classic. And the guy, and we're just, you know, probably 50 people working in there, cranking these things out day in, day out, three shifts a day. The guy running it just made a ton of money, steady business. And it's an exact, you know, thing of like what you said is that, you know, if it's a business, that's really, I'm going to work this business for the next 30 years. It's a very different way of thinking than I'm swinging for the fences this is huge. I've got to grab this space before someone else does, you know, and all that. And so, yeah, it's such a very different way of thinking about things. Reminding me. Yeah, of- and it's not that one is better or worse than the other. It's just that they are unique in their own ways. Yep. Yep. You can't manage one the way you'd manage the other. No, because startup is really just an experiment for where you have no idea what the outcome might be. You have an hypothesis for how it might work out, but it's still just hypothesis that you put in place in a document and now you're trying to see if that is true yes in fact a startup is really science hypothesis testing getting the feedback i uh i spent my life in finance and i teach finance as well as having my own businesses and what i always say is finance adds no value and that's a little bit of an odd thing coming from a finance guy but what i say is that finance is a supporting function finance operates as a mirror and it's a feedback mechanism for getting feedback about the test of the hypothesis. We say we're going to expect, you know, we're going to spend $5 million on marketing for the next three years. And we think it's going to generate X amount. Well, this is how we see. Yep. And so that's what I always say. Well, all right. So now based on what you learned from that story and from what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And let's focus it in on that man or woman who's got a deal. It's pretty good. You know, they don't see it's going to be a billion dollar deal. What are you going to tell them? If I were to spread any gospel, it would be one for where I would encourage people to think of entrepreneurship as a career, not a moment. I think there's a huge difference. And my argument is one for where if you look at, say, some venture capitalist up the street from where I live in Manhattan, he will try based on having looked at a thousand companies to pick 20 that he'll put some money into, expecting even those who were filtered through a very large amount of ideas that almost all of them will die. Two or three will go sideways and one will kind of pay back for all the losses. That is a kind of very dramatic funnel. Now, if that is the, what would we call here in the US, batting average, perhaps that works for him. How can we then as entrepreneurs, if we only do one venture, believe that that is gonna be the one that we win on? That seems both naive and unrealistic. So we might think of this as a career, or in other words, think of this as us running the 50 year fund, which is that I can really mostly invest my time and a few monies. And over 50 years, I can probably run 10 ventures. And I accept the fact that most of those ventures might not work. A few of them will. They'll pay up for the remainder. 
And that is now a lifelong entrepreneurial career. And that allows you to uh, not uh, emotionally die on those four years having worked on that one thing that didn't work. That is just you adding another row in that spreadsheet saying, oh, we leaned in, we learned something on to the next one because it's a lifelong career. I think that would be the gospel or mm. the one thing I would leave on the table. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? We can pick from uh, two buckets. Goals for my company. So uh, certainly that uh, the immediate short-term goal, meaning the next 20 seconds, is that anybody listening to this should go directly to X.AI, sign up for the free edition, try out the product, send me an email on dennis at human at X.AI and tell me what they think. But that's very short-term. Now, the mid-term goal we can pick from the other bucket is uh, getting that last kid to college. Because once she's in college, I'm home alone. I can do whatever I want. Me and my wife walk around the apartment naked. I don't know, whatever the fantasy might be, but that we can do. So that is a ultra short-term goal. You heard that one and a mid-term goal. Then we can meet later and talk about my long-term goals. Well, you'll definitely go down as the most unique mid-term goal, walking around <laughs> the apartment naked. I love it. <laughs> freedom, true freedom. All right, well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. Now, as we end, Dennis, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave few. I say brave because most people say no. I'm not coming on the show. I prefer to talk about my winners. But you have turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Stay happy. Now that's a good way to end it. Love it. All right, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.